Next week will mark my one-year anniversary here at West Hills as lead pastor, and we have uh, tackled some pretty tough topics together in that time. Mention race in the church and slavery in the Bible, abortion, the end times, divorce, tithing, the dangers of wealth, God and suffering, healings and miracles, demons and exorcism, the unforgivable sin, the Catholic Church, who can get baptized, who can take communion, and how could a Christian vote for Trump? And that was all in year one, so who's excited for year two? (laughs) Those of y'all still left here will be happy uh, to hear that I'm running out of ways to uh, run you out of church. Uh, But I will tell you all jokes aside of of all the sermons that I've been nervous about uh, preaching in this tough text series that we're in, today's passage probably takes the cake. Um, We're in 1 Corinthians 11 with head coverings and gender roles for men and women. I know for some of you, indeed, this will be the toughest text of all. Some of y'all, I know, have uh, mothers who are women pastors. At least one West Hillian used to, to be a pastor herself. Others are simply principled egalitarians. That means you believe that men and women are equal in every conceivable way, whereas uh, we complementarians believe that God made men and women equal in value and dignity, but different in role and responsibility. And so I just want to acknowledge from the outset this morning, if we go back to my uh, levels of importance diagram for various doctrines in the church, I believe complementarianism is a clear issue and a crucially significant one for us as a church, but I hope to show you this morning uh, the, the evidence of Scripture points to that, and yet this is not a core issue. It's, it's not a gospel issue. I am convinced that there will be both complementarians and egalitarians worshiping God together in heaven. And so we need to keep that in mind this morning. If you make it all the way through this morning's sermon and you still disagree with me, I want you to remember that the gospel that unites us is stronger than the significant but secondary doctrines that would otherwise divide us. Amen? And that said, this this is a vitally important issue, especially in our culture today. And so let me just try and frame it up for us in this way. Two big picture overarching questions that you and I need to ask ourselves and more importantly, ask of God's word this morning, are number one, are men and women different in any way? Do those words even mean anything in our society anymore? And number two, if we are different, how so? What does it mean to be a man, to be a woman? How ought our masculinity, our femininity, influence our marriages, our churches, our occupations, vocations, all of our behavior. The Apostle Paul here in 1 Corinthians 11 is going to answer both those questions, and in answering the first, he's going to offer us a universal principle. In answering the second, he will apply that principle in his culture by means of a contextualized practice. All right, you got that? There's a biblical principle here that differentiates a man from a woman, 
that is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago, but how that principle is applied in practice will vary. Because ladies, I don't see any of y'all here this morning wearing veils, and that's what Paul is addressing here. See, I actually had to uh, go a little bit off the cuff and shoot from the hip in my uh, first sermon at 9 o'clock this morning because I got ready to say that I didn't see anybody, uh, ladies with head coverings, and then I noticed uh, Austin Andrews, who grew up in a, a very traditional church, father is a pastor, his, his uncle was here, was a pastor, brought their whole family sitting right here, and they were all veiled, had, had head coverings. And so uh, it threw me a, a little bit of a curveball, but, you know, just adapt on the fly. Um, even if you are, most of you are not wearing veils this morning. And yet that's why Paul wrote uh, this section of 1 Corinthians 11. Paul is writing to address a first century feminist movement in the church in Corinth, where in, in that society, women traditionally wore veils as a sign of modesty and submission to their husbands or fathers, but apparently some of the Christian women in the church had started rebelling against this practice because, after all, even Paul had written in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one now in Christ Jesus. And so these women had begun to confuse spiritual oneness with cultural identicalness and begun using their newfound freedom in Christ as an excuse to reject traditional gender roles. And so Paul responds with a nine-point apologetic, a defense, nine arguments for the distinctness of men and women and for how that uniqueness ought to play out in his own Corinthian society. And so I want to dissect Paul's message this morning with you and drill down to the universal principle and then appreciate how Paul applies that principle in practice in his day before considering how we might apply the principle in our context and our practice today. And so would you stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's Word from Paul's letter to Corinthians, his first letter, chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, and I'll read it for us from the English Standard Version translation. Uh, it'll be on the screen in front of you if you have your Bibles want to follow along. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to gift one to you this morning there. We've got plenty at the info bar on your way out today. Hear the word of the Lord. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophecies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophecies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for a woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. 
For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we need you especially (laughs) to help us interpret tough texts like this one. So, Father, we submit ourselves now under the authority of your word. God, would you... As you so inspired the Apostle Paul to pen these words, would you now inspire uh, our interpretation and application of them in our context today? We want to be faithful to you in your good design of every part of our lives and worship this morning. We pray this for your glory, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, uh, before we dive in, I want to give you some quick biblical context and background on this issue. We'll go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. We hear God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We're going to be studying Genesis together in just a couple weeks and and start that whole book together. But for now, just notice that God goes out of his way to specify, to highlight his distinct creation of our maleness and femaleness. God could have just said, I created you in my image and left it at that. But he calls special attention to having created us male and female, made equally in his image, but distinct in our nature. I think part of the reason we get hung up and and, and antsy about this idea of gender roles is because when we, fallen humans, try and do separate but equal, it doesn't work out so well, does it? We end up with the civil rights movement, rightfully so. But friends, God is not like us. His ways are higher than our ways. When God creates separate but equal, he means it. It works. And he proves that in the very next chapter of Genesis, chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, At last, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Adam and Eve, perfect compliments. Eve was created by God from Adam and for Adam as a suitable helper, a perfect complement to him. The the picture here of two becoming one flesh is this synergistic idea that the sum, uh, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, that when a man and a woman come together, we're both better off 
for it because we've been hardwired differently so as to balance one another, to be the yin to the other's yang. That is the, the positive aspect of our gendering. But ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate the fruit, humans have experienced our gender not only as a blessing, but as a curse as well. In Genesis 3.16, to the woman, God said, Now, because of what you've done, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. It's a, a dual curse, both feminist discontentment and male chauvinism antagonism. Eve's curse is that she wants to be the husband. The Hebrew here does not contain the word contrary. It literally says, your desire shall be to your husband. She desires to be him, to to have his role, to take his place, and yet he shall rule over you. Adam's curse is the temptation to be domineering, to flaunt and abuse his authority over her. And We see this play out, both the blessing and the curse of our gender, all throughout the Old Testament, story after story. But for sake of time, let's skip now to the New Testament. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul admonishes Timothy, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, some people will stop reading there, and they say, Aha, that's the curse from Genesis 3 of gender. But notice where Paul grounds his argument for these gender distinctions. It's not just in the curse of Genesis 3. It's in God's perfect design from Genesis 1 and 2 as well. Paul says, For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became the transgressor. And so Paul affirms that gender roles were part of God's original pre-fall good, very good design for humanity. Similarly, just a couple chapters after our our one for this morning, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul exhorts them, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And again, It's as if Paul is anticipating the response. Well, yeah, that's just your opinion, Paul. Or our response today. Well, yeah, that was just their culture back then. That was the contextualized practice, not the universal principle. Paul continues on and says, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that these things I'm writing you are a command from the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. And so Paul says, this is not just my word. This is God's word on the matter authoritative word, not just practice, but principle. Similarly, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So not only is this not just grounded in the fall, a a result of the curse of the fall, Paul says this is in fact wives submitting to their husbands, husbands lovingly leading their wives is in fact a picture of the gospel, of Christ laying down his life for us, and of our joyful surrender to follow him in response. 
He echoes that in Colossians 3. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Paul claims that a healthy biblical view of our gender ought to be part of our church-wide discipleship strategy. Titus 2 says older women are to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And lastly, unless you think that the Apostle Paul is just some kind of male chauvinist and you write him off, which means by, way, by the way you're going to have to rip half the New Testament out of your Bible. The Apostle Peter affirms the very same principle in 1 Peter chapter 3. says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And there's so much more we could get into that we're going to skip over this morning. Can mistreating my wife actually hinder my prayers? The short answer is yes. What does it mean for women to be weaker vessels? What does it mean that they'll be saved through childbearing, First Timothy 2? These are all great questions for later podcasts. But let's... let's for sake of time, get to Paul's nine arguments here in 1 Corinthians 11 for our unique gender roles from God. Number one, the argument from tradition in verse two. Paul commends the Corinthians for, quote, maintaining the traditions. Maintaining the traditions. See, Christianity is an inherently traditional faith. Some of y'all who still remember the good old days before the drum kit with the organ up here and the choir robes. Y'all should be amening right now. But, but, but the point is Christianity is inherently traditional. Where, I mean, where does it stop? That's what we've got to ask ourselves. This obsession to stay relevant in our surrounding culture. I saw a church the other day. This is before even the coronavirus scare. I saw a church advertising their new online service Stay at home and do church from the comfort of your own couch. We've got to ask ourselves this morning, does the church need to adapt and accommodate to the surrounding culture, or are we called to be countercultural? Does the Bible need to be updated to fit our society today, or do we need to change to fit the Bible? Are the changes that we're making even getting us closer to what God desires for his church? Or is there a reason that the farther we've gotten away from original first century Christianity, the slower and slower the church has grown? Now ground, ground to a halt. The church is not growing. We're shrinking. Is it because we've forsaken the traditions? Paul commands us, 2 Thessalonians 2, 15, stand firm and hold to the traditions. When it comes to gender roles, both in and outside the church, are we going to be on the side of those who are pushing the boundaries or those who are holding to the traditions? Friends, the, the surrounding culture does not need our help pushing the boundaries, right? I mean, if, if the words man and woman, male and female, are going to mean anything, make any sense, 
in the years to come, it will only be because the church decides to stand up for the beauty of God's unique, distinctive design of man and woman in his image. Number two is the argument from headship. Verse three, this is really the crux of the matter. Paul writes in verse three, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. Liberal scholars have gone to great lengths to try and make the word head here mean, kephalos, to, to mean something less offensive, preeminence, source, endpoint, extremity, all in an attempt to skirt the real issue here. Headship is a matter of authority. It's a matter of authority. Jesus says in John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That is a radical statement from a guy who's supposed to be God, omnipotent, all-powerful. How can he say I can do nothing on my own? Because Christ voluntarily emptied himself of his divine attributes, his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness, when he took on flesh as the man of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus was equal to God in his nature, in his status, in his godness. And yet he didn't grasp it. He didn't cling to it. He willingly relinquished the powers and the privileges of divinity in order to come, to serve, lay down his life and die for us. Women are equal to men. In your nature, in your status, in your made in the image of godness. But like Christ, women have been created and called by God to a specific role in relation to men. Namely, Submission to male headship. This is the, the, the universal principle for this morning. It's male headship. It's not a matter of ability. I know plenty of women who are more capable Bible teachers than me. It's not a matter of spirituality. My wife probably has a stronger faith than I do. Submissive does not mean inferior. Jesus submitted to the Father's authority, but was in no way inferior to God the Father. You submit to your boss every day at work, even though you know you could do his job better than him. In fact, and I'm not just saying this to score points with the ladies this morning, but I genuinely believe that God might have purposely designed our roles in this way and called the, the generally more capable, competent partner, the woman, to submission while using the oftentimes more unqualified partner, the man, as the head, as the leader, so that when God still manages to accomplish his, his purposes, in spite of us men, he gets even more glory by proving that he is capable, that he is competent. I can't prove that biblically. That's just Will's opinion on that one. But whatever, maybe that's just the way it works in our marriage, <laughs> but whatever his motive Whatever his motive, God's purpose here is clear. And I'll let Mary Cassian, one of those better Bible teachers, summarize for us. She says, God created male and female to reflect complementary truths about Jesus. 
Males were designed to shine a spotlight on Christ's relationship to the church and the Lord God's relationship to Christ in a way that females cannot. And females were designed to shine the spotlight on the church's relationship to Christ and Christ's relationship to the Lord God in a way that males cannot. She says, who we are as male and female is ultimately not about us. It's about testifying to the story of Jesus. That's why we're here, friends. It's not for us, it's not about us anyway. We're here for God's glory. Our gender was given to us by God for God's glory to point people to Jesus, his glory. Number three is the argument from behavior. In verses four and six, here is where we see the principle of male headship play out in practice in the church in Corinth. Paul says, Every man who prays or prophecies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophecies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Is there anything inherently sinful about a man covering his head or a woman not covering hers? Anything inherently sinful about that? I don't think so. That was merely the sign of headship in their particular culture. And there's a debate here about whether the head covering that Paul is referring to was long hair or was it a veil. Really, there were practical reasons to observe both of those customs in Corinth. Long hair on men was associated with homosexuality. A woman's shaved head indicated she was a prostitute. Uh, Men only wore veils in pagan worship. Women forsook their veils to send a message that they were down to fornicate. But the the point here is that whatever customs your society recognizes for differentiating between a man and a woman, those customs ought to be observed by Christians. The church of all places ought to be a people who celebrate God's unique design, good design for men and women. Now, that is getting harder and harder for us to put into practice in our day and age. Because the lines have become so blurred, we have almost no gendered customs anymore. We, we, we live in a unisex culture. Many of these battles should have been fought in the church 50 years ago, but you baby boomers were too busy burning your bras. And now, sexual revolution has prevailed, and here we are. And so, I probably have more questions for you than I have answers this morning. We need to ask ourselves, in what ways can we today celebrate our distinctive gendering by God in our behavior? Should men grow out our beards like Eli Sandhouse? Should women wear dresses? Should we discourage our sons from playing with Barbies? or at least those new transgender ones. I don't presume to know how to perfectly apply this principle in our practice today, but I know we should. We should. We should seek to honor and celebrate the way that God has made us in our behavior. Number four is the argument from creation. And Paul does the same thing here in verses 7 through 9 that he did in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He grounds his argument, not just in the fall, but in God's original, very good design from Genesis 1 and 2. He says, man is the image and glory of God, 
but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. He says, remember, Eve was created from and for Adam. Her primary role was to be a suitable helper to Adam. And so too, Paul says, women today should view their role as honoring, honoring, glory and honor, same word in Greek, doxa. Women honor the men in their lives, especially their husbands, if they're married. Number five is the argument from celebration in verse 10. This is Paul's strangest argument for the principle of male headship by far. In verse 10 he says, because of the angels, just kind of vaguely, three possible interpretations I'll give you. Number one is in the Bible, angels are typically depicted as as guardians of order and worship. Revelation 8.3, Hebrews 1.6. And so head coverings help us maintain order in our worship in the church. Number two, angels are the supreme example of properly, proper creaturely subordination. Hebrews 1 again and 2. Or the way I interpret this is based on Matthew 22.30, where Jesus implies that angels don't have a gender, is that our gender was given to us temporarily, only for a time but it's a good gift from God, and so we should enjoy it. We should celebrate it while we can, because in the resurrection, there's no more marriage, and presumably there there may be no more gender either. We'll, We'll be like the angels, Jesus says, and so enjoy your gender, your sexuality, while you can. It's a good gift from God. Number six is the argument from complementarity. Paul reminds us in verses 11 and 12, nevertheless, in the Lord Woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born from woman. He reminds us we are both utterly dependent on one another. Even if you're single here this morning, you need the opposite gender. Not not just for procreation and for the perpetuation of the human race, but because we really are different. We really do balance one another out. And I know as soon as I try and give hard and fast universal you know, ways, tangible ways of that, there are always exceptions to the rule. And maybe you, know, you don't fit the stereotype. But stereotypes do exist for a reason. And Polly softens me. She makes me more compassionate. I toughen her up, make her more resilient. She is practical and managerial. I am analytical and visionary, and opposites attract, and then they attack, right? That's the story of love. And per, but you know, perhaps you're complementing, you're balancing of one another in your marriage, in your relationships with the opposite gender, don't always uh, pan out in the same ways and fit the stereotypes, but you still need to be complemented with an E, not an I. I mean, you do need to be complemented with an I as well. We're doing premarital counseling now with uh, Allie Smith and and Ryan Gibson. And uh, our last exercise that we took them through was titled, Celebrating Our Non-Moral Differences. And we ought to. We ought to praise God and thank one another for our distinctiveness, those things that make us want to fight. If you marry someone just like you, a ying to your ying, then don't expect to grow very much. Don't expect to, to, to mature very much. God has a way of using our, our differences to mutually sharpen and sanctify us. 
Number seven is the argument from discernment. Paul exhorts the Corinthians in verse 13 here to judge for yourselves. Now, we've got to be careful here because our consciences can fail us. Our consciences are influenced by the surrounding culture. They're marred by the fall. They are not infallible. And so we have to test everything, Acts 17, 11, against the perfect truth of God's word. And yet, Paul still argues here, doesn't it just feel wrong to see a woman praying without her veil? And, and if he got in a time machine, he might say to us today, doesn't it just feel wrong to see a guy wearing a dress, wearing makeup, to see women boxing, beating the snot out of each other? If, if Polly and I were arguing in public and she punched me on the arm, we might get some looks, but probably nobody is stepping in to defend me and intervene. If I punched her, hopefully some bigger guy would come along and put me on my back. Because there's something in us instinctively that says that's wrong. We discern that that's a very different scenario. Those are two different scenarios, and how we respond is different based on our gender. Number eight is the argument from nature. Nature, in verses 14 and 15, Paul says, Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Paul says, look, even if you reject every other argument I'm throwing at you here, you cannot argue that we're not different anatomically. Biologically, our very DNA attests to our dissimilarity. John MacArthur exposits this particular example of hair. It says men and women have distinctive physiologies in many ways. One of them is in the process of hair growth on the head. Hair develops in three stages, formation and growth, resting and fallout, uh, resting and then fallout. And the male hormone testosterone speeds up the cycle so that men reach the third stage earlier than women. And some of us with lots of testosterone, really menly men have been fighting this battle before our, our 20s even. Just all sorts of testosterone coursing through this, this body. The female hormone estrogen causes the cycle to remain in stage one for a longer time, causing women's hair to grow longer than men's. And Greg Johnson, in his helpful article contribution uh, to John Piper and Wayne Grudem's landmark Work, compilation, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Recommend it to all of you. You can download it for free online today. He, uh, uh, Greg Johnson outlines dozens and dozens of additional scientific sex-based physiological differences between us. It's one thing to ignore the Bible. It's another thing to ignore the scientific evidence right in front of you. And yet, that's what so many want to do today. And finally, number nine is the argument from unity. From unity. Paul concludes in verse 16. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. And that's really in some ways the biggest tragedy of all this morning, friends, is that not only do many progressive Christians miss out on the beauty of of God's good design for us in our gender, but they split the church over it. 
I mean, if you look, most of the church and denomination schisms in the past 50 years really do boil down to self-professing Christians who choose unity with the culture over unity with the church. Unity with God's word. Unity with historic Christianity. And so let me end this morning again with a plea to us, West Hills, for Christian unity. May the gospel that unifies us truly be stronger than any force or any issue that would come against us and seek to divide us. Because listen, the issues will change with the culture. There'll always be a new issue. 40 years ago, it was feminism. 20 years ago, it was homosexuality. Today, it's transgenderism. God only knows what it will be 20 years from now. The issues change with the culture. But you know what hasn't changed through all of that? God's word. God's truth. The gospel. The good news. That God is perfect and knows what's best for us and designed us intentionally without mistakes and yet we are sinful, we're fallen, we fall short of, of giving him the glory that we're created to reflect and yet he loved us so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die for us and all we have to do is repent and trust in him as Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of our sins, and we can be saved. That's the gospel. It hasn't changed in 2,000 years. God's word has not changed. And in a world where even our gender seems to be in flux and change daily, new categories of, of gender being invented every day, Praise God that his gospel, his love, his word never changes. Amen. Let's pray.